Hello, hello, and welcome to the first official episode to the Talking Dev podcast. In this podcast, I want to talk with developers and especially game developers or people from the game dev industry and learn more about their daily routines, morning rituals, tools they use, tricks, and maybe also motivation techniques. Something I find very exciting are always book tips, movie tips, and eventually where they got the inspiration from. And in this very first episode, this was actually recorded some time ago, actually, some, some years. The episodes were recorded live on Twitch, so you might notice a slight change of audio quality. And in this episode, we talked in the beginning of 2020. It was, I think, shortly after the first lockdown, so eventually already in the middle. I talked to Josh Sawyer. Josh is this very talented, known, and especially inspirational and motivating video game designer, especially known for his work on role-playing video games. This includes games like Icewind Dale, Fallout New Vegas, Neverwinter Nights, and of course, Pillars of Eternity. You can find the actual video recording of this podcast discussion on YouTube. Um, however, we decided to also move the recordings as audio files to a nice audio podcast format. So let's jump directly into the first um, conversation. Enjoy the first podcast episode with Josh Sawyer. Okay, so hello everyone. We are back and we have a really, really fantastic um, speaker with us today. This is Josh Sawyer. Um, he's a really, really amazing, famous, known um, video game designer from sitting in California right now. I think it's pretty sunny and nice yep. there, what I saw on the, on the Twitter pictures. Yep. And he's known for so many brilliant works like Fallout New Vegas, Pillars of Eternity, and he's creative director, game designer at Obsidian Entertainment. And I'm super excited that you can join us today to talk a little bit with us. Good. Josh, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, it's uh, it's 11 in the morning here. And uh, yeah, uh, we start, at least my team starts work around <clears throat> sometime between 9 o'clock and 9.30 in the morning. And so we all hopped onto Slack because uh, that's how we... <laughs> we use Slack and Teams, so we hopped onto Slack, and uh, we usually just say what we're going to work on during the day, and then we later had a Teams meeting to go over our, our um, sprint because we're beginning a new sprint today. So, oh yeah, wow! Pretty yeah. well. Thanks so much for taking your time. Like at the start of a sprint, this is always a hassle, isn't it? <laughs> um. Well, I mean, it's um my project is in a pretty good position right now. We're in pre-production um, and we're just at the end of our prototype stage and the prototype is looking pretty good <clears throat> and we have a pretty good handle on what remains to be done. So I think if it were in the middle of production, it would be a little more frantic um, or if it were toward the, toward the end of production, it would be a little more frantic. But um, because we're in prototype and the prototype is in a pretty good position, uh, yeah, it's it's not... It's not that stressful, thankfully. <laughs> oh, you probably cannot talk about the prototype, right? Not uh, now, unfortunately. Yeah, it's unannounced. It's a it's a small project, though. But we will follow you on Twitter and and follow your projects as soon as it gets announced. Um, so you already Someday. mentioned. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> Twitch chat is telling we we won't tell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> okay, so um, you already talked a little bit about your process right now. So how how did things change for you right now with all the remote work? Is it is it a hassle or is it okayish? It's actually not too bad. Um, I think that. I think that the team size has a large impact on it. Um, also, the phase of development uh, will have a lot of impact on it. So, uh, you know, we have a number of projects going on at Obsidian at any given time. And uh, the only announced project that we have right now is Grounded. And the Grounded team is, I want to say somewhere between 12 and 15 people. Mm -hmm. And that's being led by Adam Brennicky, who, um, you know, was the executive producer on and lead, pro well, he was executive producer on Deadfire, and he was the lead programmer on uh, Pillars of Eternity. Mm. And their team was already like pretty deeply into production, and they're getting ready to launch the game um, in in a game preview on um, Game Pass for Microsoft. Um, so they, I think it was mostly an easy transition for them. For my team, because we're announced and not under a lot of pressure right now, and it's a five-person team, um, Coordination was not too difficult because we did a lot of stuff over Slack already. Um, our larger teams, though, like teams that are you know 30 or 60 plus people, mm. <clears throat> coordination becomes a lot more difficult. Um, Slack can get kind of fractured. Either you get a lot of spam in a single channel or you have to split off into a bunch of private channels, in which case there's a lot of sort of back channel conversations that are happening that people can't. There's no way to, it's not like being in an office space where you can kind of pass by and overhear conversations and jump into them. Mm. Um, so you have to put more effort into communicating things that are being talked about in separate channels. Mm -hmm. And uh, Teams has become more instrumental for us. Uh, we didn't use Teams a whole lot um, before we started working from home. But once we started working from home, Teams became uh, necessary because... Um, it allows for m much better video conferencing than anything else that we've used, mm -hmm. and the ability to share share the desktop, give control over the desktop to other people in Teams while you're talking, is uh, very helpful. We've even done Obsidian has 185 employees now, and we've even done company meetings through Teams where everybody is just in the same meeting. Wow! And okay. uh, it actually worked. In some ways, it's been, we've tried a couple of different versions. The first one was really slow and boring because it was just everybody talking or like each director talking. Mm -hmm. And um, the second one went a lot better because we realized, hey, we can just share our desktop and show things in the Teams stream. So instead of talking about the things that we've done, we can just show the things that we've done without needing to go through, like you can just show whatever you're working on on your desktop or go straight to the blog or whatever. And that uh, wound up engaging people a lot more, which was really nice. So using Teams, uh, and I say this as someone who, honestly, even though it's a Microsoft product, I was not really into Teams before <laughs> before we started working from home. But um, it is actually pretty useful. So, do you do you think it makes a difference if people have the camera like um, on or? I think it does. I think just in general, uh, that's a that's a pretty common thing. Like um, being able to see the other person's face uh, yeah. or people's faces and reactions makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. um, so obviously, if there are big, big meetings, there are limitations to that. But especially if it's like a small, like a strike team or something like that meeting, um, where it's probably six or fewer people, mm -hmm. then uh, I 
think teams can be very useful because you can see how, how people are reacting or their expression yeah. when they're talking. And I think that's very useful. Absolutely. And how many like of those meetings do you have at the moment at, at, um, per day? Because I, I figured like when we started with our online meetings, all of a sudden we had like meeting, 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 meeting without any break. And this was like, really yeah, it's, yeah, I am probably <clears throat> of all the directors at Obsidian, I'm the one who is most hostile to meetings. Um, and I will basically I, I make people justify why a meeting has to exist. Um, and if it keeps going on, like if it's a regular meeting, uh, as soon as it seems like it's no longer necessary, I ask them to shut it down. Mm -hmm. um, I try not to have more than three meetings in a day ever. Mm -hmm. um, I do have, because I'm the design director at the studio, I do have design leads on other projects that meet with me every two weeks. And they're sort of staggered and alternating based on logistics. Mm -hmm. So I spread those out so I don't have to be in teams meetings for more than, you know, like two and a half, maybe three hours mm -hmm. in a single day. And there are some days where I have no teams meetings. Most days I have probably one or two just mm -hmm. to drop in. Um, it has been useful. For example, I was I was working with one of my artists, and there was just a slight lack of clarity about something where I had I had looked at what she did, and then I gave feedback, and then I saw an update on what she was working on. I realized that either I, like there was a miscommunication, so I said, "Can you just jump in te Teams?" And she did, and she brought up what she was working on, and then I grabbed that, and then I shared my screen, and then I drew on top of it, and I explained what I meant, and she was like, "Oh, okay, now I get it." And then that was it. But it was like a you know a, a quick you know eight minute meeting maybe, uh, and that was that was really good. So for for drop in things where you you really need to directly point to something and say like, "No, this <laughs> this thing is what I'm talking about." It can be useful for that as well. But I do think that um, there is even more of a risk in working from home that, uh, believe me, I've been in plenty of meetings that just go on and on and on, and they you tend to get people spacing out. Um, when people are working remotely, um, that gets worse. Like, because, yeah. I, I mean, I can... I can flip over to another, I can flip over to Chrome, I can like look at what's happening on Slack or Discord. Uh, there's a million distractions. <clears throat> and I've heard of, um, I've heard of tech that tries to basically monitor that to make sure that people are actually paying attention to the, you know, like the <laughs> Teams page. Okay. And here's the better, here's the better idea, run your meetings better. <laughs> because yeah. it's still time and money that you're burning from the people that are, are in the meeting. Yeah. Um, so, so this is already so many good points. So what what suggestions do you have? Like apparently you have already a good idea how you want to have your meetings run. Like three meetings max per day is a really good rule. Do you have any other of those rules? Like the length of the meeting or specific meeting dates? Um, yeah, I generally believe that um, it's it's incredibly rare that any meeting needs to be more than one hour. Like. It's in in my opinion, if if a meeting is longer than an hour, it's probably not structured very well, um, or it's probably more than one meeting's worth of content. Like mm -hmm. you're you're trying to actually talk about too much stuff in a meeting. Um, the one rule that that I do stick to pretty faithfully, um, especially if I notice that it's becoming a problem, is I will decline. And by the way, I should say that I have the ability to do this because I'm 
the studio design director. <laughs> Not everyone has the ability to do this, mm. but I will just, I will decline any meeting that doesn't have an agenda that shows what the, what the object of the meeting is. Like, mm-hmm. what question are we trying to answer and what are we supposed to get out of at the end of it? And then approximately how much time are we be spending talking about things in the meeting? So, you know, five minutes is an intro. Ten minutes is talking about this problem. Fifteen minutes is going to be spent working through about this. Ten minutes for this and then five minutes for wrap-up. Hmm. And um, I don't think that's unreasonable. If, if, you are, if you are organizing a meeting and you're asking five, six, ten people to come into that meeting and spend an hour in it, you can spend five minutes typing up that agenda. Yeah. Like, uh. And if you Thanks and if you, you don't if you don't know what all of those things are, then you need to take the time to talk to the people that are going to be in the meeting to figure out what those things are, mm-hmm. um, because otherwise you're just going to wind up wasting everyone's time, and 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 getting them to tune out. And if <clears throat> if you establish an agenda and you don't have to stick to it religiously, but you have to try to just be respectful of everyone's time. Mm-hmm. And there are times where I've run meetings like this where something I allocate for 15 minutes winds up going to 18 minutes or something. And then I have to say, Hey, we know there's an unanswered question here. I'm making a note of it. So that at the end of the meeting, we can come back to it. Um, And you will find yourself in some circumstances where you raise more questions in a meeting that demand a follow-up meeting, Mm -hmm. but they also require a bunch of offline talk between people rather than like, I think when you have a meeting where two people are essentially talking to each other to the exclusion of everyone else for like five to 10 minutes, that's not a meeting that everyone should be in. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, it's, I, I just think practices like that where, where you look around and you realize that nobody really wants to be there. Um, mm-hmm. No one really knows why the meeting is. Uh, I just think, I, I think that it's a small cost to the person organizing the meeting to do the legwork to figure out exactly what you're going to be talking about um, and break down the time so that people really know when they come into it, oh, we're going to be talking about this. We're going to be going over these things. And at the end of it, we're going to have an answer to these questions. I think mm-hmm. that's a pretty sound way to go about it. Yeah, that's that's really good, yeah. Um, you already talked about different tools, like you're using Slack, you're using um, um, Teams. Do you have any yeah. other recommendation for tools you're using, like for, for general workflow or which can be handy, useful? Yeah, um, so ridiculous, yet, I just want to answer a question really quickly. It's okay. Ridiculous, yet, um, asked a question, is development all in the cloud or does someone need to maintain servers in the office? We, um, we do everything uh, through secure VPN um, that goes to uh, Obsidian. And we have an IT staff that maintains that stuff at Obsidian. Um, and uh, is it ever a concern that Microsoft might be able to data mine your team's content? Well, they own the company, so it's not really a concern of mine, <laughs> personally. <laughs> but I also don't, I don't handle any of our IT stuff, so. I am always very, like, interested in the daily routines of people. Like, I'm always very fascinated, and I think you um, you are really having a very inspirational career. You are having a very inspirational way of how you're um, proceeding and how you're like um, working so many projects from the start to the end and finishing really incredible work. Are there any routines um, which which are helping you through that by doing um, by doing that? You mean like just over the course of my career? Yes, um, or daily routines, processes, whatever. Um, 
I'm not I'm not like super big on um, on routine personally. Um, I think part of it also is that because I'm the studio design director, there's a lot of stuff that I do ad hoc. Um, mm-hmm. There are a lot of things that I somebody says something to me, you know, like in passing about like, hey, something's going on on this project. Did you hear about how they're handling this? And I'm like, nope. Um, <laughs> and then I'll have to, you know, hop on uh, Slack or, you know, if I were in the office, I might see someone and say like, hey, do you know what's going on with this thing? And uh, there's a lot of stuff where I just drop in and talk to people or people come over and they ask if they can have a meeting, you know, like a, a sit down with me and sometimes they want to vent some steam. So I actually prefer to have my day not be particularly uh, heavily structured. Mm-hmm. That's another reason why. Um, so I will say, so I have been, um, I mean, I've been a lead designer going back as far as Icewind Dale 2, mm-hmm. which is early 2000s. Um, but I've been a director since Fall at New Vegas, and Fall at New Vegas had, I think, at most like 78 people on the team. And one of the things that I try to do, and this goes back to meetings, is I uh, I basically just refuse to be in more than a few meetings a day. Um, and I may stop in with people and say, hey, I understand you want me to be in this meeting. I don't want to be in this meeting because it's basically just sucking time out of my life and my workday. So this is my input. You need to figure these things out and I will come back to you after your meeting to find out how things went. Mm-hmm. Um, so being, being firm about understanding that I have a responsibility to the rest of the team is important um, because on, on Fallout New Vegas, with the exception of toward the very end of development, I talked to every person on the team at least once every day. So that could be something very simple where I would just walk into their office and be like, Hey, what's up? How's it going? Mm-hmm. And I tried to make sure that in those meetings, it never seemed like I was um, like I was being their nanny or something (laughs) like I was there to make sure that they were working. And uh, I actually had to send out an email at one point because um, everyone, everyone has different work processes and some people like having stuff up kind of in the background or on the side. I know a lot of artists and animators actually um work totally fine having they can have like netflix open or hulu open um i can't i can't do that at all um but i called them the alt tab all stars Mm -hmm. because um i would walk into the office and i would just see that their hand their left hand very quickly go and and i could see the the lighting change very quickly on their on their face and i never brought it up directly to them because i didn't want to make a big deal out of it but i had to send out um an email saying don't like, I don't care. <laughs> like if you are doing, if you're getting your work done and your work is high quality and you don't seem like you're screwing around all the time, I don't, don't really give a shit about that stuff. And the point of me coming into someone's office is to just drop by and see how things are going. Mm. And it's more that I'm coming in so that if they have a problem, I can either directly help solve that problem or I will immediately go and get a person will then come to the office with me. And I made sure to never make it an email thing. I would always find a person and say, please come with me to this person's office. And then I'd come to the office with that person and say, uh, Dennis is having a problem with this thing. Is that correct? And Dennis would say, yeah. And then I'd say, producer, I want you to work with Dennis to figure this out. And I'm going to talk to you in a couple of hours. And then I'm going to um, you know, find out how this was resolved. Because I can't solve everyone's problems, but it's my job as the director to kind of walk around 
and um, understand what was happening, I guess. Mm. Uh, but yeah, on when I'm when I'm on a smaller team like I am now, um, it's easier to keep t- uh, track of what people are doing and just interface with people. And then I try to leave most of my day open for those informal discussions that always come up. But that's very specific to my. Um, my position. There have been times where my day is very busy doing implementation or writing, and then there are days where it's, uh, or rather projects where my days are more open and just more loosely defined. Mm-hmm. So I know that's not particularly helpful, but. <laughs> no, 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 but super interesting, super interesting. Um, so you already mentioned, like, huh, this, this, um, I, I can remember now what we we're talking before. Um, it, was, it was the tools. And then, okay. yeah, so, so what tools would you be able to recommend? Um, we use uh, Confluence for mm-hmm. documentation, mm-hmm. which I'm not going to lie. Confluence has some really obnoxious um, idiosyncrasies to their features. Like comment, commenting can sometimes be extremely frustrating. But um, I think so a while back, meaning... 10 to 15 years ago, we used SharePoint and we would write documents usually in Word and then we would check them into SharePoint. We would use that as document version control. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Confluence overall is a little bit better. But one thing I will say with Confluence is that for whatever reason, it is much easier structurally to make a Confluence site into um, a labyrinth of garbage. Um it's very easy to make documents mm-hmm. and it's very easy to nest documents under each other. And, um, you know, basically like on my current project, I made a proclamation. I said, never, ever, ever nest anything more than one layer deep in the confluence structure ever. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and so I said, like, if, if you think it's supposed to be under something else, then you, you may need to make a new subheading or a new heading, uh, in the table of contents under which that should go. But I basically said, like, just don't, um, don't do it because it'll just become impossible to find things. So, um, and Con- Confluence also is very, very tolerant of a messy sort of organizational structure. So you do have to actually be vigilant about making sure that things are actually ordered and named properly. Um, and again, because if you don't, it'll wind up looking like a, a big old mess. Um, actually, actually, just one moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to see... I can probably. Sh- Sorry, Louisiana. So, actually, can we do a uh, screen sharing through this Skype? This would be fantastic. Yeah. Oh, okay. Can you, can you see a web page there? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. So, um, welcome to this is uh, this wow. is our sharing page for Deadfire. Huh. And, like. Oh, that's interesting. I'm just I'm just doing this to demonstrate how um, <laughs> how this can get a little hard to oh, navigate. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and look, so this that I'm expanding is just two game world and story. Yeah. Like. Okay. Very all, good. All, yeah. There's all the rest of this stuff as well. So. Um, that's why I say, like, be be very uh, be very careful about um, about how you organize this stuff, and, and make sure. Yeah, we even have um, 
we even have like, for example, we have a cut content thing down here. We also, maybe these got migrated, but there's like a dead, there's like an older deprecated document section. If we don't mm -hmm. want to delete things, we can just move them out. Um, obviously the organizational structure is going to be particular to, um, to each team and each project. But, um, I have found that, uh, Confluence lets you do a lot of stuff and you can just make doc after doc after doc. So, uh, you know, Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. The other thing I would say is, let me see if I can open something that's not going to be embarrassing. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is not. Oh, um, actually, that's one thing that that I. Um, um, one thing that I think is good is if you have a summary. Mm -hmm. um, we always have at the top. We have a we have a, a, a doc format where we have a summary, and then we have uh, goals, and. The goals are um, a way of letting the person who's coming into the document understand what you're trying to accomplish with the design, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which um, you might say, oh, that's obvious. Uh, is it? <laughs> mm -hmm. A lot of times, um, and it was actually funny, there was another project where I started insisting that all design docs at the studio have goals, um, you know, like spelled out very explicitly in a, in a bullet point um, right after the summary. So the summary says just nuts and bolts, this is what this is. So in this case, this is a uh, currency. This document details currency used in Deadfire. It includes currencies from the original pillars as well as new currencies in use by the Valen Republics, Juana and Rawatai. And then the goals, um, very hopefully very clear. Um, the reason for this is that when a person reads the doc, they can do two things. They can say, one, I question your goals which I think is a good thing to do. So a person can say like, I think that your goals are not good goals. <laughs> and you can have a discussion about that. Um, and then the second thing they can do is if they agree that the goals are good, then they can evaluate the rest of the content of the document back mm -hmm. to those goals. Mm -hmm. So at any given point, if you look through this and you go like, I don't think this is really accomplishing what you set out to do, um, then that can be a point of discussion. And you can keep you can keep evaluating things back to the goals that you've um, established. Hmm. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, we 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 include like a status. So this says open for review. It shouldn't be. Um, I know that we should be super on top of all of our documentation, but um, this should say. Uh, actually, I don't know what, what that should say. Well, let's let's find out. Let's find out what that should say. This should say. This should actually say. Complete. Oh. I'm, I'm going to complete it. Yay. <laughs> uh, two years after the game is launched. Um, <laughs> so you can have in progress ready for review. Um, you know, uh, we, we put in people's names here and then back on the front page, uh, there's a list of documents that people need to review. Mm -hmm. So we use that so that people understand like, oh, we're supposed to give feedback uh, on these docs. Um, that can also, unless you schedule time for that, that can fall by the wayside. Um, so yeah, that's important. But yeah, Confluence is uh, is our main tool that we use for design documentation. Um, we use Jira. I'm not going to jump into Jira, but yeah. uh, we use Jira for tasking. Um, we use it for our Kanban boards. We use it for bugs. We mm -hmm. use it for actual uh, tasks for people. Yeah, Jira is, is useful. Okay, yeah. cool, yeah. I'm going to stop sharing. Wow, thanks for sharing that. This was really impressive. This, this oh, is huge. I don't, hopefully it was useful. Absolutely. 
Okay. Um, wow. Yeah, there was a lot of irritation in the chat about conference. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, very, very, very lovely. Um, so something which I always find really interesting is also your background. I mean, um, you have a very different background um, compared to this traditional path into game design and, and creative um, as a creative director. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because there will be a follow-up question, which I already take away now, because I'm always very interested in your inspiration. Um, it's so inspiring. You're, you're posting a lot of like books and documents you found on, on Twitter. So you, you see you already where I like, try to, where I'm trying to go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's funny because you say that it's a, not a traditional way in, but if it's like if you go back far enough, it becomes traditional. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, <laughs> I started started in the game industry in 1999. Yeah. And at that time, there weren't any, um, I shouldn't say any, I'm sure there were somewhere, but uh, there were not a lot of schools for game development period, much yeah. less game design specifically. So you could go and get a CS degree, but it wasn't a game-oriented CS degree. I don't even know if there were any schools back then that focused on that. Um, but at least at, Obs or sorry, not Obsidian, at Black Isle, most of the people that I worked with back there, um, a lot of those designers had degrees in the humanities or social sciences. So, um, you know, Chris Avalon has a degree in English. Mm -hmm. uh, Tom McComb has a degree in philosophy, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, and my degree is in history. Uh, I originally went to school for vocal performance. Uh, I went to the Lawrence Conservatory of Music. And uh, I switched major to history. And um, I was still, I was always interested in games, uh, tabletop role-playing games and computer role-playing games. And uh, yeah, that's how I got, uh, like basically I started working for Black Isle as a web designer. I taught myself web design in the late 90s and I taught myself Flash 3. <laughs> um, and this is how long ago that was. So when I applied for the job at Black Isle, um, which was to be the webmaster for the Planescape Torment website. I did, it wasn't announced yet, so uh, nobody knew what it was. But um, there were 62 applicants. Of the 62 applicants, three knew Flash. <laughs> um, and I had just taught myself Flash. I wasn't oh, like yeah. any, you know, like amazing wizard in it. Um, and I was, I was actually the second pick for the job. They, they had offered the job to another guy. And he uh, he took another opportunity, um, so I was the second pick to be the uh, the webmaster. But that's that's how I got in. I mean, I graduated. Um, I was not a very strong student, honestly. Um, uh, I was on academic probation twice when I was in college because I was not a very serious student. And um, when I graduated, I had a pretty bad GPA, and I had a degree in history with a minor in theater, and uh, I knew how to design websites. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, I got a job at uh, at Black Isle Studios, and um, and yeah, I was there working with the Planescape Torment team as the webmaster for um, you know until until it was released. But I started splitting my time uh, at Black Isle between being a web designer and being a junior game designer in late 1999, mm -hmm. and just because I, I was so excited about the possibility, and at that time I didn't really know. 
I didn't know what like what the path into game development was. So I was just like, well, I'm here. I'm I'm working with the devs, not as a developer, but I'm working from the marketing team and. You know, I was I was always talking to Tim Donnelly and Colin McComb and Chris Avalon about game design, Dungeons and Dragons, which I knew a ton about mm-hmm. uh, as a, as a as a gamer. Um, and I had done a bunch of amateur tabletop game design. Um, and eventually, a position opened up on the original Icewind Dale team, um, and and I started working as a junior designer. And eventually, I transitioned away from doing web design to doing uh, design work full time. That's that's how I got in the industry. Yes, this is really impressive, yeah. So, and now the inspiration part. Like, where where do you get your inspirations from? Where do you, um, what what does inspire you? Where do you get your ideas from? Yeah, I would say I would say that um, there's kind of two two like sort of tracks of of thought on that. Mechanically, um, I do pull inspiration from other games. And a lot of times I look at games out of genre. So um, the role-playing game genre is very tradition-bound with Mm. roots that clearly go back to, at least in the Western tradition, go back to Dungeons & Dragons. And Ultima and Wizardry and games of the the, the late 70s and and 80s and Bard's Tale, of course. And um, in terms of content though and like world building i actually tried i don't try to pull inspiration from other genre games i more look at history um my degree is in uh european history well it's in history but what i focused on was early modern european history mostly the holy roman empire and um very inspired by that uh period and um i don't know i kind of take a uh I kind of take more of a Werner Herzog approach to like how to be a, how to be a good director, which is um, it's less about being super entrenched in the medium that you're working in. And it's more about doing things that aren't in the medium that you're working in and then seeing how those experiences can pull back into and inform the, the, what you're making, mm-hmm. what you're working on. So, you know, I, I ride bikes and uh, you know, I have old cars and, until recently I rode motorcycles and, um, you know, I like hiking and nature and, uh, I love the national parks, Americans, uh, national parks and things like that and music and poetry. And I just, I try to, I mean, I don't think these are unusual interests. Um, I think there are, are a lot of people have a wide array of interests, but I think that, um, one thing that, that does, I'm going to see if I can phrase this in a way because I don't want to sound negative, but no. <laughs> I think I see a lot of young game developers that are so focused on games and so focused on game design and that their life is game design that um, they're not living life outside of game development. Mm. And I don't think that's healthy in the long term for the, for them as, as just people for them as human beings. Mm. And I don't think it's healthy for their creative work. Mm. So I think that, um, uh, I think it's important to, to balance work life, not just for the sort of like, well, that's the modern sort of liberal approach to it. But I do think that stepping away from stepping away from your work gives you a better perspective on your work. Yeah. So. 
Oh yeah, yeah, I, I I so much agree on that. Like, I mean, there are even so many studies that, for instance, that you do some sports in the morning that it really pushes your creativity and your productivity as as well. And also, like, if you if you're just looking into computer science books or game design books, you never get interesting ideas um, for for some really cool projects. So, yeah, yeah I, f- I find your way of like living and working pretty, pretty interesting and inspiring here. Thanks. Um, I will. Well, I was going to actually add one thing, which is um, I, I think like I love books and I love reading books. Um, I'm not a good cover to cover book reader. <laughs> I get a lot of books and I'll read like, you know, 15 pages here and there throughout the book and then like pick up another book and do that all over. Um, so I have a lot of books that I've read like, you know, 50 pages of, um, but I do think in a lot of cases that hands-on experience is uh, really important. So um, I do think that, you know, like I see this often, sometimes it can be really cynically done as like a PR stunt, you know, where it's like the team, the team is working on something and, and they, you know, they like the publisher ships all the, the developers to something for like a photo op to say like, they went to the place that's in the game. Um, but like, you know, when we, when we worked on Fall at New Vegas, I uh, drove my motorcycle around the Mojave Desert, around, <laughs> around Las Vegas. Um, and it was because I actually wanted to understand, like, I wanted to understand really what mm. it felt like to be in that desert and really what the plants looked like and really what the terrain looked like. And yeah, you can look at photos, but it is different when you feel, when you're like there and you feel it. Um, Absolutely. I know I remember another thing that, that you were kind of surprised about is that I was um, like into guns, um, which, <laughs> which actually didn't start until uh, I worked on Fallout New Vegas. And I realized when I started working on Fallout New Vegas, hey, there's going to be a lot of guns in this game. And I know about guns through like reading wiki articles and through watching movies and looking at, at other games. And I'm like, I don't think that's actually the best level of understanding. And so, like, I went through a handgun safety course, and I got a handgun, and I got several rifles, and I went to the range, and I learned how to field strip guns. And it was a combination of sort of academic study, reading about things, and then also hands-on, and actually getting my hands-on and going like, oh, 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 this is how this actually works. This is Mm -hmm. how this mechanical linkage actually works. This is how the slide is actually attached. Um... And I think that, you know, for whatever strengths and weaknesses Fallout New Vegas has, I do think that people, the people who don't know don't care, which Mm -hmm. is true, but the people who do care generally, uh, like, tend to believe that the guns were well represented in Fallout New Vegas, and that people who lived in, uh, who live in Las Vegas and are familiar with the Mojave Desert feel like it was faithful. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, there was a point very early on Fallout New Vegas where an artist made a saguaro cactus which is a very iconic cactus and he dropped it right in the middle of an area and i was like those are not in the mojave desert <laughs> he's like yeah it's the desert and i'm like those are south those are in arizona they're very cool cact- they're very cool but they're not here no. they're joshua trees here and i know it sounds like a small detail but like when that desert was then populated with joshua trees and all of the native plants of the mojave it actually looked like the mojave desert uh, well, as well as that rendering engine could 10 years ago. Um, I'm sorry, I'm kind of rambling at this point, but 
I do think that sort of like getting out and looking directly at stuff is is very helpful. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But the gun thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, very good. And I do. You, I mean, I, I know you read a lot. Do you have a number of books you sort of read? I didn't know that you're not reading like the, like I always have the need if I start a book, even though if I finish it like in two year two years, I need to finish it at some point. This is some sort of a pressure for me, but um, I think I don't know. I have a uh, I do have a really ad hoc approach. Um, actually, here's a good here's a good example of a nightmare for me. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I. Die Geschichte der Gastfreundschaft im hochmittelalterlichen Mönchtum. Um, for those who don't know in the, in the stream, ob obviously, um, Josh does speak German. <laughs> so, wir könnten das Interview auch in Deutsch führen, eigentlich. Das wär, <lacht> <lacht> eigentlich wäre das auch lustig. <lacht> yeah. um, but so, like, for example, so I got this book because there was one, like, there was one specific um, there was like one specific, not even a full chapter. There was like a sub chapter in it. Um, uh, Yuta Maria Berga wrote that, um, you know, like back in the late nineties and I just wanted to do a cross reference of something mm. and there was nothing in English. I actually saw it referenced by another book in English that said like, of course, Yuta Maria Berga has written extensively on this. <laughs> and then it, it was like, it was funny because I was like 17 pages into this other book. And she was like, the author was like, well, I'm talking about the Benedictines in England in the 11th and 12th centuries. But of course, other authors have written extensively on this. And then there's a footnote. And then I saw this and I immediately went to Amazon and ordered it. Um, but the thing is like, you know, this is a, a, a great case where academic German is so dense. Yeah. Um, it's not only you know, academic German. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and but that's the thing is like, I've been, you know, like I've been... Uh, you know, like I started learning German technically, you know, like 20 years ago and for the last 10 years I've been using it more or less daily. But I mean, a book like this is still really, really excruciatingly difficult for me to read. Um, yeah. But there's useful stuff in it. So my approach is that I get all the books, <laughs> I get all the books that I feel like there's something in it that I need. And I don't, I don't, um, I should also say that Actually, I'll, I'll I'll bring the whole thing over just a second. <laughs> oh. I don't know. So this is like, this is my like current reading. <laughs> oh, that's cool! Wow. <laughs> and and these are not books. Actually, I I did completely read one book in here, um, Unlocked Books by Benedict Lang. But I don't know if you noticed, but the common trend is generally it's history books. Um, I sort of figured. <laughs> yeah, and. And so I, um, you know, like I basically, I kind of know what I'm looking for in each book and I don't, um, personally, I don't feel bad about not finishing them because they're not, they're not, um, this is the, they're not it, stories. They're it, not, it's research. It's, it's research. Yeah, yeah. So I, I tend to sort of hunt and peck. Yeah. Um, I am reading currently, um, this all the way through, the which is, uh, 25. yeah, yeah which is very good. Um, and th this is one where the comprehensive sort of stuff, like I'm taking, taking a lot of notes and, um, <laughs> and, but yeah, mo most books I pick up and I kind of leaf through and I, I look for the things that I need and I put them down. Um, do, and do part you, of that is, 
part of that is that I it's it's rare for me to be able to sit down and just spend hours reading. Yeah. But also usually it's like I do have a specific uh, desire where I'm like I want I want to know this thing. Do you have some like really important books which which turned out to be super important for you for your work for your lifestyle whatever um, like some books which inspired you and which get stuck to your mind. Um, you know, I, I should say that one of the, one of the biggest ones in terms of, um, in terms of novels, uh, just because it, it has a lot of impact, you know, like historically is, um, uh, the name of the rose by Umberto Eco, mm -hmm. uh, because it, it is, it is a historical murder mystery. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I've also read some of Umberto Eco's essays and, he, you know, is, is very into semiotics and books, books about books, text about text, um, <laughs> lots of, lots of interreferences. And so I find all that very, that stuff very fascinating. So Echoes works overall. I also really love Bottolino. Um, and although I've not yet finished it, uh, Foucault's Pendulum, um, <laughs> just because it, it, it does, uh, all those books have tons of interlinked historical references and, uh, things that I find really, really fascinating. Um, and I, I do love, um, in my own work, I like trying to create, I guess that's the thing, like one of the things I love about historical fiction is that the world building is already done for you. The wor mm. world building is the world that we live in. Um, mm. And so when I, th I think about uh, what appeals to me about historical fiction, it is the, the completeness of the world that's being represented, even though it's within a fictional framework. Mm. So... Whether it's the Mojave Wasteland in Fall of New Vegas or the Deerwood in Pillars of Eternity or the uh, Deadfire Archipelago in Deadfire, my world-building approach is very much to be um, holistic with it and think about it as, a, as like a real world, as much as one can, magic and spells and super mutants and things like that. Mm. But to just try to think through it comprehensively, um, like why are these people here? Why are they not over here? What do they eat? Um, how do they make money? How do they interact with the people around them? How have their languages changed? Mm. Um, like that was one thing for um, like Pillars of Eternity. When I, I was thinking a lot about uh, language and obviously studying European history and thinking about language uh, and how different cultures interacted or didn't interact and how it influenced the, the movement of, of vocabulary. Um, one thing that kind of bothered me in fantasy worlds is that how the languages either come together or don't. So... In Pillars of Eternity, in the first game, in the Deerwood, people speak Adiran, which is more or less English. Mm -hmm. And the cultures that surround the Deerwood um, come from Edir, where they speak Eldadiran, which is based on Old English. Mm -hmm. And then Valia, the Valian Republics, and they speak a language that's based on Italian, French, and Occitan. And then adjacent to them is Erglanfoth, and they speak... Um, a language that's based on Cornish and Welsh. <laughs> and English as a language is Germanic, heavily influenced by Romance with Celtic mm -hmm. in it. So felt, it felt like better to me to make <clears throat> the common language essentially English in an area where the, co the component languages were essentially Germanic and Romance and mm -hmm. Celtic. So I just, I try to think through those relationships a lot, whether or not they're a hundred percent accurate. It just helps things feel, I think a little bit better. Hmm. Yeah. Have I read Ghostus by Robert, Robert Schneider? I have not, I have not read that. I should check that out. Thank you, Jacques. <clears throat>
Um, and something which I always also find very interesting is a little bit more if, if you want to share things about like like your personal life in terms of like what hobbies you already mentioned you, you're doing sports and you're playing music um, do you want to share a little bit about uh, things which help you free your mind or yeah um, so I I I have found over the years that um, I kind of, this is personal observation time. So uh, I have kind of drifted from hobby to hobby with, um, there are some common threads between the hobbies, which is one, it's mechanical. So there's something mechanical about the hobby. Um, the second is that there is some sort of vintage or old market or aspect to it. I'm usually not particularly interested in whatever the current um, stuff in that mm -hmm. hobby is. I'm interested in the older things. Mm -hmm. um, and also because I am a Europhile, I, uh, <laughs> if, if, if European brands and manufacturers were part of it, I tend to be interested in it. So that's cars, motorcycles, guns, watches, and bicycles. <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately they're all expensive yeah. hobbies. Uh, but that is kind of like, you know, over the years. And so for the past, I would say 10 years, I've mostly been interested in bicycles and restoring and repairing uh, vintage bicycles. And when I say vintage, I usually mean um, 19, late 1960s to the 80s about. Um, and one of the things that I like about working on bicycles is that um, they're not that big compared to motorcycles <laughs> or, or cars. So I can be working on a number of projects at a given time. Um, there is the hunting aspect, which I think a lot of people, anyone who like goes onto eBay regularly or Craigslist, um, I don't know how big Craigslist, Craigslist is in Austria, but um, I, I don't think it's, we have it at all. Oh, okay. We have but like the uh, the excitement of the hunt where you're like looking for a very specific thing i mean that's the appeal of like vintage bikes for me is looking for the specific old part um and sort of like waiting and pouncing on it when it appears um like i was really excited uh a few years ago i got to go to gamescom which i've been to um i've been to gamescom many times maybe too many times now and uh, after Gamescom ended, they were having the inaugural Eroica Germania, which is a vintage bike ride in the Rheingau, mm. um, north of uh, Mainz, I believe, close to Mainz. And uh, I wandered over there, and there were these two Italians who spoke. Actually, it was funny, because I started speaking to them in German, and one of them spoke no German, and the other did. And then we were, so one Italian guy was talking to me in German. I was talking to him in German. And we negotiated this whole deal to buy these really nice Campagnolo Delta brakes. And then at the very end of the conversation, somebody said something in English. And we were like, oh, we both speak English. I guess we could have just <laughs> oh. spoken English. But, but it's stuff like that where, you know, like you find someone who has the part that you've been looking for and for two years. And then you find it and collecting all that stuff together and then... Um, I think one of the things that can be frustrating about game development is that, oh, Mainz is your hometown. Very nice. I, uh, <laughs> um, I, game development with very few exceptions is a team-based endeavor. 
And especially on large teams, sometimes there are days that go by where you feel like you just spend all day talking or you just spend all day documenting and you don't see a lot of progress and you're very frustrated working with people. And one of the things I like about these bikes is that with very few exceptions, I can do everything that I need to do myself. <laughs> so I can go into the garage and I can take a box of parts and I can put them all together and I can make that whole bike go together. Yeah, and it's an extremely nice feeling mm -hmm. when you, when, when you're like frustrated in another endeavor at work where you're kind of like, oh, why can't this just get done? I don't understand. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's a big part of it. Um, I also love getting out into nature. Um, I just got a, uh, I, I say just, a year ago I got a, you would call it a T3, a Volkswagen T3 mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah. camper van. Um, we call them vanigans here. And um, it's very nice to be able to go out to a park or a beach or whatever and just park it and pop the top and camp there. Mm. Um and it's, it's, you know, as much as I try to ignore my phone when I'm out, I, I do look at it. But um, the best part is when I go to a place where there's no cell reception at all. So <laughs> it's just kind of like, well, you better enjoy nature now because there's <laughs> no way you can connect to anything. Oh, um, yeah. But yeah, I, I do think that living in California, um, with the exception of when it gets very hot in the summer, uh, there's so many beautiful places to go and hike or camp mm. uh, or, or ride bikes. So. It's yeah. all incredible. California is a nice place to be. How is the weather at the moment? Um, it got a little hot. Um, oh, geez, let me just convert for a second. It got up to about 28 degrees Celsius. Wow, okay. Uh, I mean, we had like 25-ish the last couple of days, yeah. almost. So it was, uh, it was a little hot, and... Um, One thing is because I'm working from home, like Obsidian's offices are very nice and they're very, very well uh, insulated and uh, they're very well insulated and air conditioned. Uh, the house that I, I rent uh, does not have any insulation and it does not have any air conditioning. <laughs> oh. So it's getting, it's getting kind of uh, difficult. So I ordered, I ordered some air conditioners that hopefully will be here soon, but thankfully it cooled down a little bit. Now it's, now it's closer to, yeah, like uh, 25 Celsius. Oh, so. yeah. Nicer. And, and and in terms of like at the current situation with Corona and everything, I mean, how do you deal with this current stress sitting at home? Not, I mean, probably people are, I, I don't know how the situation in California is right now, if you're allowed to go outside or. It's, it's a, it's not a great situation. Um, so Governor Newsom is the governor of California and he issued stay at home orders, but they're not, um, They're like people can be cited for breaking them, um, mm -hmm. but especially where I live in Orange County, we have uh, I live I live probably two miles from the beach from the Pacific Ocean, mm. and um, a lot of people in the last two weekends have gone to the beach, mm. and it's really crowded. Like so, I love I love cycling. Like I don't just love working on bikes; I actually like riding them. Um, And I had to stop riding my bike outdoors because I live in the heart of a big metropolitan area. Mm. And the only way I can ride my bike out is either to ride on the streets, which is not super safe, mm. or on the trails. And the trails are extremely crowded with people. No. And it, it's because everything shut down, the things that are open are parks and trails. But then everyone goes to the parks and the trails. So they get really crowded. So I had to buy an indoor trainer because that's... 
I was just, I was really worried about, um, you know, running into somebody like the, the trails are so crowded that I just don't even feel like I can safely ride my bike on them. So, crazy. uh, yeah, so I spend most of the time day indoors. Um, uh, if I remember to once a day, I, I take, uh, our dog for a walk around the block. Um, <laughs> which is nice, but even walking the dog around the block, there's a lot of people out walking on the street. So I have to be cautious about that. Um, we also in Orange County have protests uh, for the past two weekends where- This is crazy. Of... I know. <laughs> this is so crazy, wow. Yeah, also also in my home state, Wisconsin had okay. protests. Um, so it's, uh, I'm trying to just stay in. I only go out uh, if I walk the dog once a day for about 20 minutes and then, um, to go shopping for groceries. And thankfully now all the grocery stores have a policy that you can't walk in unless you actually are wearing a mask, yeah. but they get, they get really crowded. So people can't actually maintain social distance within most, um, with, within most like grocery stores and things like that. So hmm. it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. I'm always looking in the background for a dog, but didn't see one. Well, yeah, he, he can't come into this room because this is this is a ses this is my office and it's Sesame's room. And if you, I think maybe if you look, uh, let me see if my finger can show behind me. Yeah, yeah. there's a there's a little cat uh, cat food basin. So if um, if the dog were allowed in here, he would just eat all the cat's food. Oh. So yeah. he, so there's a little, there's a little gate. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Um, Josh, thank you so much for taking so much time for the, for this lovely interview. Um, is there any, any, any more questions in the chat? Um, some good news from Austria, from Jacques. The hospital I work at is closing down more and more COVID units because we managed it well so far. That's good. Oh, awesome. there's one question. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't actually played Fallout 76 yet, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I didn't play it when it came out, and I haven't, obviously, I haven't played it since the update, so I don't actually know how it is. <laughs> and have you seen Meme Historian's video on it? Oh, no, yeah. <laughs> um, yes, I did watch that. That was very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so thank you so much. It was so nice talking to you. And Very nice talking to you. Thanks for having me. Um, goodbye from Lila too. <laughs> I <don't know. laughs> So, oh, maybe you want to answer one more question from Jacques? What okay. do you think about Wasteland and the upcoming Wasteland 2? It's actually Wasteland 3. <laughs> but... Um, uh, no, yeah, I mean, I played a little bit of Wasteland when I was a kid. I played some of Wasteland 2 when it came out. Um, I, it's one of those things where there are so many games coming out uh, now that even the ones that I'm interested in, I don't feel like I have a ton of time to play. And again, because I have made a choice to not, um, to not just play games with all my free time, um, that kind of means that I usually only wind up playing like one game at a time. Uh, for like short periods of time. So as an example, I have some friends that are playing a lot of Animal Crossing right now. <laughs> and I actually got invited to um, uh, my friend Kat. Uh, she is not working right now because 
or she's a costume designer and all of Hollywood is kind of shut down right now. So she's been playing Animal Crossing like I think eight hours a day since it came out. And um, I went to her island and I was just in disbelief <laughs> because it was so, and she was like, let's go to your island. And I'm like, I don't, it's, <laughs> no, no it, it, it sucks. It's, it's embarrassing. So, um, but I, yeah, I, I, still, I still have a tent. How is your tent? <laughs> Oh, I actually have a house. I do have a house. Now so you're bragging. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I haven't. Um, I am not. I have not yet played the Wasteland Three beta. Unfortunately, I think it looks cool, but I, I haven't played it yet. Hmm. Fortunately. Okay, I have one last question because what better way to end such a nice discussion with a question like, what? really important wise words and tips would you give young game developers to, about to start a career? No oh, pressure, geez, but <laughs> yeah, that's really bad. Um, I don't know. I think, I think the general advice of, um, I think starting small is usually like, I think all the times that I've like really screwed up, it's when I try to do too much. Too much, too fast, too soon. Um, I often recommend that if people are starting out in game development, modding is often um, a great segue into full game development, mm. um, in part because the scope is so much more limited. Um, scope, scope management is such a, more than technical knowledge. Technical knowledge you will just get with time. Um, but managing the scope of what you're trying to do is such an important skill. It's hard to communicate and hard to teach because it's in some ways it's only through going too far that you realize, oh, that's where the limit is. Um, but start with things that are simple and manageable, um, whether it's a feature, like a whole, whether it's a whole game idea or or just a feature. Um, start simply and build from a solid foundation rather than trying to do everything very complicated very very quickly mm. um again like e even now i mean i've been doing this now this is my 21st year as a game developer and um you know i gave i actually gave a twitch talk that's now up on youtube about dead fire mm. and um one of the big mistakes i made on that game was making a reputation system that was actually so mechanically complex that uh basically the designers couldn't use it and the uh the players couldn't really understand it <laughs> and in reality, uh, keeping it simpler and making the scope more straightforward would have been the smarter decision. And, and then if we needed more, we could have built on top of it. But what I designed was a high-level, very complex system that then was, in some ways, almost irreducibly complex. So I always think for anyone doing dev work is that start small and build up rather than starting with something that is massive yeah. and trying to throw yourself at it. This, this is very, very wise words. Um, thank you so much. Um, Josh also has a Twitch account and I saw you're your streaming, playing games. <laughs> yeah, um, just, just I, one right now. <laughs> yes, I'll post the link directly to the chat and also on Twitter where you can see pictures of the cat and the dog. <laughs> yes, um, and there's shit posting though so <laughs> you were okay so thank you so much thanks everyone for for joining thanks. the stream and the lecture today 
And again, have a lovely start to the new work week. For us, it's already <laughs> almost half past nine. <laughs> so have a great day, um, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for joining. And give, um, please, a big round of virtual um, Twitch chat applause to Josh now. Thank you. All right. See you guys later. Bye. Bye.